Good evening again. If ever there was a story in the Bible where a character can serve as an archetype for us, I think it's in John 4. Uh, in my reading, limited as, it, limited as it's been, um, I rarely encounter stories or, or, or writings where people think that we should identify with Jesus. Although that changed in more recent centuries, ever since like the 19th century, it seems like uh, the human conception of Jesus changed. And p- instead of asking, where do I fit in Jesus's story? People started asking about how Jesus can maybe fit into their story. And the idea became, how could we model Jesus as this sort of hero figure instead of the Messiah? So my intent tonight is not to imply that, uh, you know, we better identify with Jesus, especially it, that would be kind of absurd in this story that we would want to model the wandering rabbi who stops to prophesy in a woman's life and then eventually identifies himself as the Messiah, right? But I don't think it's so crazy to imagine us in her shoes. Not necessarily as someone that we should model after, but that someone who we can relate to and how we relate to Jesus. I think this story provides a sort of before and after dynamic and that's kind of how I want to examine the passage and, and handle it in this, in this uh, sermon. So the before is, this, is the woman's lack of introspection, maybe a lack of self-awareness, a lack of curiosity in her toward herself, but also toward this man with whom she's talking. And then the after is this willful release to Jesus, which accompanies a curiosity in following Christ. So we're going to explore the passage in terms of before and after her encounter with Jesus. So the story begins with Jesus leaving Judea and heading back to Galilee because of the Pharisees. Jesus probably did this for a few reasons. First, it's just that he's humble. He didn't want to cause controversy with the Pharisees. And then second, maybe this should have been first, but second, He's God, (laughs) and so his plans are perfect, and it wasn't the right time for him to make his power known. And then third, it seems like the reason he's passed through here is the prompting of the Holy Spirit compels him. It says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria, but it doesn't really say why he had to, so we can just infer that he had this compulsion. He just had to. He couldn't not. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria that's called Sychar, which was near the field that held Jacob's well, and he sat down by the well. And we've spent a few chapters in John now, and I think you, if you've been around, you can see that John is fond of narrative illusions. And what I mean by that is that John likes to drop little hints in his writing that refer back to other stories. And for the reader who's familiar with the Bible, It adds layers of significance to the story. And here, you can totally appreciate John 4 as a wonderful story without knowing anything about Jacob's well. But I think there's greater depth if you know a little bit about Jacob and a little bit about this well. So going all the way back to Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, God calls a man named Abraham. And now I'm just going to tell you guys the whole story from Abraham up to, just kidding. Uh, He calls a man named Abraham 
He chooses him, it says, and he says, from you, I will make a nation of people who I will bring my love and care to. And then he says, through those people, I'm going to bring my love and care to the whole world, the whole broken world. And this is a thread that goes throughout the Old Testament, where we see that God chooses people, not the other way around, not that people find God. He just chooses people. And it's worth acknowledging that this makes us uncomfortable. I, it makes me uncomfortable in some ways. Uh, but I would also contend that it's no less uncomfortable to say that God chooses people than to believe that God would abandon people to their own capacity to search out and find him. Especially if we believe that humans are weak and broken. So God chooses Abraham and he gives him this miracle son, Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And in this strange story, Jacob, the younger brother, tricks his elderly father, Isaac, into choosing Jacob as the recipient of Isaac's estate and inheritance instead of Esau, who's the older brother and the rightful heir. So that creates a rift between Esau and Jacob. Later, they reconcile, and Esau says, I'm not going to take anything from you, Jacob, because he feels like he's provided for, despite the fact that he didn't get the inheritance he thought he was going to be getting for. So there's peace between them, and when Jacob feels like it's okay that he has that inheritance, he goes out and he buys his own land, and then he builds a well on that land. And the field that Jacob bought is, is actually near the West Bank in Israel, and that well is still there today. You know, there's a lot of artifacts in Israel that people will say they think this is from, that, but actually because a well is like a 60-foot deep hole, they know, it's one of the very few artifacts that they know, you can like go see the well from this story. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's a cool idea. I haven't seen it. I haven't been there. Uh, to recap, Abraham is chosen by God. God provides this miracle son, Isaac, to carry on his people. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're in this dispute over their inheritance. They reconcile, and after that, Jacob uses the inheritance to purchase land and build a well. And then later on, Jacob uh, gifts that land and the well to his son, Joseph. So there's this thread of God moving close to people that he chooses, whether they like it or not, and God provides for them. All right, so now let's go back to John 4. Jesus sits down near Jacob's well. And John is conjuring for you the significance that Jesus is doing that by noting that it's Jacob's well. He's trying to bring up in your minds that God is one who pursues and provides for his people. He finds people, he reconciles them to him and to their enemies, and then he provides the fields and the water that they need like he did for Jacob and his descendants. Contrast that with this woman. Okay, she's a, a woman in the ancient world, which unfortunately means that she is a second-class citizen. And she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans were Jews that had been conquered by the Assyrians, 
and syncretized with them, which means that they worshipped God, but they also sort of polluted their worship by including all these Assyrian rituals and marrying with these folks. So that, that's what a Samaritan is. So she's a Samaritan woman. She likely does not feel like a person who is uh, pursued and provided for and reconciled to God. And that's confirmed later in the story. Jesus doesn't view her that way as a person of lesser value. He's talking to her, which is a big deal. He's relating to her, and his disciples are actually buying non-kosher food because they're buying food in the city in Samaria, and Samaritans didn't have kosher food. So that's something interesting. Uh, but that's, that's how she, she could know that Jesus is treating her well, but she doesn't see that. She's a little argumentative with him. She assumes that Jesus is judging her Uh, You even see that when she says, you say that we should worship in Jerusalem. But where does Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that. He never says that. She says, you say that we should worship in Jerusalem. But she's making an assumption. She's putting words in Jesus' mouth. She assumes that she's blameless in a certain way. and, and, uh, And that she ought to be a little standoffish to him. There's a lot of assuming going on. And, and I don't blame her for that. If I was her, I think I would be in the same position if I was a Samaritan woman and this Jewish man was near the well where I get my water. I don't think that the woman at the well views herself as a victim or with shame. And I'll save a little bit of that for later, but I think it's important to get that mindset as we talk about her in, into our heads. I, I think sometimes it, this passage is read as she's sort of this lowly, woman with shame and and that's really not I think the way that I read it and I'll, I'll share more about that but uh, but I, I think she feels fine with who she is um, she's just unaware of her estrangement from God she's unaware of a number of other things she's, she's just not totally aware that uh, there is a God who pursues and provides for people and that she is now one of those people Like God gifted Jacob with reconciliation to his brother and provision of a field and well, Jesus is offering reconciliation and a figurative field and well for her in himself. She just doesn't know it yet. So he comes to her, unbeknownst to her, and he sits in her path to offer her eternal satisfaction in her restless soul. He starts out by asking her for a drink. So he's already pursuing her. He's humbling himself to need her to draw the water since he doesn't have a bucket. He's moving towards her in a friendly way, but she is suspicious and retorts, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She's standoffish. And she's sure of whom she is, and she makes assumptions about Jesus' identity, too. She doesn't respond with, well, what's your name? You know, where are you coming from? You know, tell me about yourself. Instead, she just relies on her limited experience and her limited view of the world to make assumptions about herself and this stranger. She assumes that he is a Jew who would not associate with Samaritans or a woman, but he's not. His actions tell us that. 
And she assumes that he is misguided about where to find satisfying water. But of course, he's talking about something different than what she thinks he's talking about. So probably a year and a half ago, I had a friend tell me that I was uncurious. And it is something that has continued to resonate deeply with me. And what he meant was that I'm very sure of my interpretation of situations. And ever since then, I've, I've really been thinking a lot about uh, what does it mean to be curious? Uh, in my own life and more widely in our culture, there seems to be a lack of curiosity. And this is just like the Samaritan woman. She's not ashamed. She's not curious about her estrangement from God or other people, and neither am I. I think this is prominent in our political discourse. You might disagree with me. I have a feeling you don't. When I tried to recall as I was writing this sermon, examples of of liberals and conservatives sitting down and having a genuine conversation that involved wanting to gain empathy and a real appreciation for the other person's position, I can think of two examples in my life where I've seen that happen. Two. I mean, I've seen many political conversations, but very few have I seen where someone really, really almost wants the other side to compel them to like, to like their vision better. When I hear liberal friends talk about conservatives, it seems like they genuinely believe that conservatives are only motivated towards limited regulation because they're selfish, for selfish gain. Instead of considering that conservatives might genuinely have a vision for our world where small government and different tax structures might truly be the best thing for a whole society. So instead of inquiry, they assume there's an agenda. When I talk to conservative friends, it seems like they think that liberals are truly ignorant of government waste and bureaucracy. Instead of considering that liberals might actually have a vision for our world where government is active and large but effective and good, they assume that there's just an agenda, that that really there's some sort of deeper thing going on where they don't actually understand how government works. The rare but impressive form of political discourse that I would love to see from Christians, but rarely do, is genuine conversations where someone simply asks a non-rhetorical question about the other person's view and then doesn't offer a rebuttal. Just true fascination. But, of course, we're not swimming in water of that kind right now, are we? Politics is just one example. It's just one cognitive, external example of where I think we lack curiosity. But we all constantly make assumptions about ourselves and our state of being and the state of being of other people, too. So much so that I'm not sure that we can even recognize how much of that is inside of us. How, I, I, I'm not sure that we even realize how uncurious we are. And I think one example of that comes from this quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he diagnoses the situation. He says, The terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment. 
And that to change the man, you have nothing to do but change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. I almost never attribute my discontentment to what is happening inside of me. I hear many of us attribute our discontentment to things outside of us. My discontent is because of my disagreement with some politicians. My discontent is because of my weak friends. My discontent is because of my job. My discontent is because of my church. My discontent is because of my living situation. If I change my job, if I change my home, if I change my church, I will find contentment. Think of a friend you know who this year changed a job or a church or a home with an offered rationale that there was dissatisfaction with the old situation and that the change of scenery would improve the situation. Think of someone like that that you know. Did they find the cherished satisfaction? It's, it's very possible that they did. Um, but I can think of many examples where they didn't, where it didn't work out like they thought it was going to. The same problem of dissatisfaction still exists there. And that tells me that I ought to rethink whether the narratives I tell myself are lies. Do you grumble that the people around you seem politically foolish or ignorant? Are they or could it be you? Are you frustrated by your work? Could it be your perspective and not the environment? And I'm not assuming that you're wrong. You might be right about your job or your home or your friends, but I would just encourage you to reflect on whether or not you perceive the situation correctly. In other words, to have curiosity. The Samaritan woman has not inquired, at least at first. She's not curious about herself or this character who's speaking to her, and I am the same way. Uh, one of the things I thought of that is just, you know, this may not be all of you. I think this is actually probably a uh, consequence of my vocation. Pastors are able to have conversations with people because we have to learn to be able to do that, but I think sometimes we talk too much and don't ask enough questions. And I was just thinking about how many times I've been at some sort of social gathering and someone says something to me like, where do you live or what are your hobbies? Um, and I just start talking about my interests or my job and I go on and then the conversation moves in some other place and then we circle back and I, I have not asked them and then they, it comes up like they have the same hobby as me. And I was oh, we, we could have connected about this had I said, oh, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your hobbies. A friend of mine had something similar to this happen uh, in kind of a funny way. He was in a barber shop and he was wearing a Dale Earnhardt shirt. And he was wearing it ironically, which is important to the story. And my friend is not familiar with NASCAR, but he's wearing the Dale Earnhardt shirt, ironically. He walks in, and all the guys in the barbershop start joking about the three car, which was Dale Earnhardt's car before he died. And after some 
vague joking across the barber chairs. Uh, one of these guys was getting ribbed, and, and he responded, ha ha, yeah, you know, ever since I got the three car, I've been getting a lot of flack. And uh, my friend makes some assumptions, and he per- pictures perhaps that this guy has one of these uh, street cars that maybe you've seen that's like custom painted to look like a NASCAR. And he says, oh, would you, would you paint the three on the side of your car? And the stranger with complete sobriety responds, no, it's my race car. And, and so my friend decides to go further and says, oh, you're racing up there at Bowman Gray in the three car? And the guy shrugs it off. And I can tell some of you know, know my friend. Uh, and, uh, and he shrugs it off. And the guy says, no, I, you know, I did, it's, I'm not racing up at Bowman Gray. And the guy pays and he walks out of the barber shop. And after he leaves, the rest of the barber shop enlightens my friend that had he asked with genuine curiosity, he might have learned that the man was Austin Dillon, who is the NASCAR driver who drives the number three car. And I think that's a good analogy for what the Samaritan woman has going on here. When she says, where do you get living water? In verse 11. She's, she's just not asking anything about who Jesus is. She's not inquiring about him. She's actually assuming that by living, he means running water, like a spring. That's why she points out that he doesn't have a bucket. How, how are you going to get water from a spring if you don't have a bucket? She's asking him rhetorically. She's assuming that this guy is ignorant and misinformed. So there's no genuine question from her yet. And even when Jesus tells her about her five husbands, she's not curious. She's evasive. Now, I've been picking on her. I do want to pause for a moment and just say that um, we shouldn't assume that her five husbands is something to her shame. Okay, When Jesus says that, he's just showing her that he knows her. But we don't know that her husbands didn't leave her or that they didn't die. So, you know, I don't want to paint her to just be this, this uncurious, terrible person. What's important is that I think she's a normal human, just like the rest of us, and that's why we can identify so much with her. Still, she's not contrite when Jesus points out that she has this current man friend who's not her husband. Instead, she's not curious, not contrite, she's evasive, and then she kind of starts a theological argument. So she, she first says, ah, oh, I see you're a prophet. You know, she, there's no self-reflection or self-exposure or moving towards Jesus. She doesn't say, you're right, how did you know? Tell me about this power that gives you such insight. Instead, she kind of shrugs and she's like, oh, neat trick, That's, I guess you're a prophet, cool. And then she starts a theological argument. So she deflects away from herself. Instead of talking about what's going on inside of her, you know, she starts kind of pushing a theological issue with Jesus. Instead of reflecting on her broken relationships and the way that those wear on her own soul, she tries to start an argument about an external issue. By now, she knows that Jesus is not a bigot or a haughty religious person. His words are both penetrating and they're inviting. He's in Samaria, which is already 
tolerant of a Jew like Jesus. And his disciples are buying non-kosher Samaritan food. And he makes himself approachable by asking her for a drink of water. And then he exposes her life, the struggles of her lost marriages, and the shame of her current relationship. But he doesn't turn away from her, and he doesn't scold her. Yet her response is not to ask about him or to reflect about herself. Instead, she's deflecting, sure of herself. In an age of of GPS mapping and constant social media updates and political punditry, it's no wonder that we are not curious. We know where we're going and how to get there. We know what's happening in our friends' lives at all times. And we have like-minded commentators to assure us that our perspective is, is right. That lack of mystery takes a toll on us spiritually. One of my college roommates was from Las Vegas, so we visited him over spring break one year, or we visited his family. And the thing I found fascinating about Las Vegas was not that it was uh, debaucherous, Even if you're not gambling or going anywhere, it's just so entertaining that you can go days without thinking about your own life or your own soul or God. And honestly, I think that that is a a model for what our life is like in our culture. You know, consider for a moment your job and your hobbies and your home, and your consumption of media, whether that's articles and podcasts or Facebook and Instagram, how much do they monetize, monopolize your mental space and your heart's desires? They have complete domination over me. And that causes this terrible cycle because the more I allow my job and my home and my media consumption to dominate my mind and my desires, the less curious I am of where is God in my life? Is he right before me? And where is my soul allowing me to be estranged from him? Like the woman at the well, I'm not asking, where is God? And who is he before me? I'm not asking, where am I wrong? Yet I'm convinced that I'm correct. Where am I starting political and theological arguments to deflect from my own vulnerabilities and faults and mistakes? God knows that we are incapable of searching for him. He knows that we lack curiosity. So he comes to us. He stands in our path and he sits down at the well and we often miss him because of our lack of curiosity. The good news is, though, that God knows that we are not curious by nature. And that's why, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for humanity appeared, he saved us. Not by works that we had done, but by his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He knew that our lack of curiosity would keep us estranged from him. So at the perfect time, he came in the flesh through Jesus as the Messiah. He broke his body to remedy the brokenness that we brought into his creation. 
And he would rise from the grave and send his Holy Spirit to us that we could drink the delicious, satisfying living water of life in Christ. And we celebrate that at this meal.